you to open your Bibles to the book of Luke, chapter 2. While you're turning there, just a couple of things. Uh, Tim already mentioned it earlier, uh, but uh, Reggie had this idea to uh, get uh, kind of the uh, scully and, the, and gloves, scarves, and a couple of pairs of socks for uh, those who are homeless. Um, and uh, I'm not sure what his original goal was, but he raised some money from some guys and had enough about 175 and he wants to get more than that. So if you are interested in helping, uh, I think we kind of figured it out. He was able to get some really good deals, and uh, he can get uh, all those things for an individual for about seven bucks. And uh, so he wants to order some more of that so he can uh, give those out to about maybe 225 or 250. So if you want to help with that, you know, you can just give us a check later or when we take offering tonight or something and just put the memo. You can even put Reggie's name. We just put Reggie. We won't give it to him, but we will. Uh, but it's so you can buy some more of those things, and uh, we'd be uh, appreciative. And then also, while you're praying, uh, throughout this week, you know, in the back of the bulletin every week, we have the Missionary of the Week, where basically we kind of do a profile and an update of the various missionaries that we, uh, that we support. And uh, this week is Jim and Karen Romaine. Um, I had the opportunity a couple years ago. Uh, he was here visiting, and he was over at my house uh, Cindy was gone, and we were over there. I think I think we were. I'm sure we were having food. I always have food when people are at my house. But anyway, uh, we were just talking, and uh, you know, all of our missionaries. I think all of our missionaries are unique and special, and and uh, are doing a terrific work. And it was great to get to know him on a very informal level and hear him talk about uh, the work he's doing there in New York uh, among the Muslims. Uh, you know, he was in Turkey for a long time. And uh, he is just doing a, a great thing. Uh, he goes to all the very, there's a very large Turkish population in New York. And he's just a very, even though he's very reserved, he's very bold. And just kind of goes where they are and strikes up conversations and uh, becomes friends with them and shares the gospel. And it's just a, a, something he does each and every day. Just a great deal of uh, personal ministry. And uh, so just continue to pray for them and the work they do. It really is uh, terrific. Uh, he works hard at what he does. And uh, also pray for their financial support. I think they've had some churches that have either um, gone through some difficulty and are not, no longer supporting them or some of their individual supporters have gotten old and, and have died, gone with the Lord. Um, so there's some needs there. But uh, he's just a great brother. And uh, so just keep them in your prayer in your prayers this week as you, uh, as you pray for them and our other missionaries. Let's bow before the Lord. Father in heaven, again, we thank you for, again, your goodness to us. And again, for this special time of the year, Father, that we can uh, focus on and celebrate the giving of your Son, Christ. And Father, even though we lament how Christmas, in one sense, has been marred by the world, uh, Lord, it, it doesn't have to be that way for us, and, and it's not. Uh, Father, we understand... Um, why we celebrate Christmas. We understand the theology that's behind all of it. And we are so grateful. And Father, we ask not only would you enable us and give us opportunities to be able to share with others, perhaps uh, discuss with them the real reason why we celebrate Christmas. Uh, we pray, Lord, that we would also then in turn celebrate it ourselves, uh, that we would continue to become much more grateful, Father, to you for your willingness to intervene in the history of man. Uh, that you did not just give up on us, that you did not just throw us away, though we certainly deserve that. But Lord, that you sent your son Christ 
uh, to take on flesh and to live among us and to suffer rejection and to suffer physically and emotionally and in every way that, Father, we might be reconciled to you. And we are so happy for that. So, Father, we ask for your blessing on your word today. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Luke chapter 2, passage that we are very familiar with, beginning in verse 8. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. When it comes to the birth of Jesus Christ, when it comes to him being born in Bethlehem, what most of us are familiar with is, you know, all the manger scenes that we see, whether it's some kind of a wooden stable or if you're familiar with the idea of Bethlehem, uh, you know, from if you've read anything by Arne Frutzenbaum uh, that is surrounded by these, by these hills and it's very common for them to dig out of them uh, and create a cave and interspersed uh, around Bethlehem are these caves. Some are used for tombs to bury the dead. And some are used as stables to keep the animals. And so as I was doing some more reading about that, I, I have a, a research book, I guess you would have, that you would say a lot of pastors have it. I've discovered that a lot of guys have not read it. Um, but it's a very interesting book. It's written by a guy by the name of Alfred Edersheim. And uh, he was a, a Messianic Jewish man, and he has a, a book that's entitled Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. And it is about that thick, and it's about nine font, so it's, it's small print. But it's, it's a very interesting book. And so he had, um, well, I, I think it's more than a theory, but, you know, we, we, none of us knows the exact spot where Jesus was born. You know, no, no one can, you know, I guess, I guess if you go to Israel, someone can say, well, this is the spot. But they, they don't know the spot. Uh, they don't know really where, which stable it was, that type of thing. And, and when you read through the passage... There's no indication that when the shepherds left, that they, that they went from stable to stable to stable looking for a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes. They may have, but there's no indication either way that they, that they didn't. And Alfred Edersheim was of the belief that they didn't do that, that they knew exactly where to go. Now, there's a lot of, lot of stables around, so how would they have known? Because when you say... You know, you'll find this is to be the sign to you. The baby's going to be wrapped in swaddling clothes. Okay, but if you have, let's say, 50 stables, and I'm pretty far away, how do I know which one to go to? I can't see the baby from here. So how, you know, how is that going to be a sign? Well, this guy did some research, and so I want to share some things with you that I think are really very interesting about this. And so it is, there's a possibility that when Jesus was born, 
You know, I've made a big deal before about the manger scenes being wrong that you buy, about the wise men. They weren't there. You know, so when my kids were growing up, we had the manger scene and the wise men were across the room because they weren't there yet. They, They came one or two years later. So, you know, that's, well, it's also possible you might have to get rid of all your animals. Because there may not have been animals in there either. You'll, you'll get that in just a few moments. So when it comes to the birth of Jesus, we do know this, that clearly from the book of Micah, chapter 5, it was prophesied um, that the birthplace would be in Bethlehem. As it reads, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Bethlehem uh, is the place. Uh, where in Bethlehem, though, is the question. Uh, the fact is, the New Testament doesn't mention the exact place in Bethlehem of where Jesus was born, except the fact that he was in a stable. Uh, nowhere in the Bible does it record that Jesus was born in a stable with animals. Uh, it doesn't mention that there were donkeys and chickens and cows or anything else that was there, even though we do have those in our manger scenes. I'm not saying it's a sin to have those. It may not be. But the point is, is that it's not mentioned in the Bible that they were there. Uh, and so we need to kind of see if we can look at some things and figure this out. So even though the New Testament doesn't tell us where in Bethlehem Jesus was born, the Old Testament, and this is what Alfred Edersheim states, and he believes this, and there's a few other guys who think that he uh, was onto something. In the book of Micah, chapter 4, verse 8, it says this, As for you, O watchtower of the flock, O stronghold of the daughter of Zion, the former domain will be restored to you, kingship will come to the daughter of Jerusalem. Let me read that now. That's from the NIV. Let me read it to you again from the New American Standard. As for you, tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you it will come. Even the former dominion will come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. Some believe that when he makes this reference here to the watchtower of the flock, that that is where the Messiah will be born. What is the tower of the flock? What is that? Well, the Hebrew phrase, and I'm only going to say this a few times because I'm not going to keep trying to say this, uh, but I think I'm saying it correctly. It's the title of the message, but it's Migdal Eider uh, is how it was given to me phonetically, um, and I'm not going to keep trying to go through that throughout the rest of the morning, but, but Migdal Eider is, is the Hebrew phrase, and it means the watchtower of the flock. So when you do some research about that, in ancient times, this was a military tower that was erected to view into the valley on the edge of Bethlehem to protect the city. So it may have been, you know, two, three stories high, maybe four, but somewhere around there is this tower that's just built out there uh, to kind of be able to, to give them a good bird's eye view of the valley and protect the city of Bethlehem. In Genesis, it states that after Jacob left Bethel, he came to uh, Adar, which means the tower, and there Rachel began hard labor as she delivered Benjamin, where she died, and was buried there in Epathrath, which is Bethlehem. So the oldest traditions, based on Genesis 35 and 48, points to a place about one mile north of present-day Bethlehem and four miles from Jerusalem. We don't know where the ancient bounds of Bethlehem was. We don't know the boundaries of the city back then. But we know that the area called Bethlehem was larger than it is today. So it was a much larger town than uh, what you can visit now. So this watchtower from ancient times was also used by the shepherds for protection from their enemies and wild beasts. It was a place where ewes were safely brought to give birth to lambs. So you have this tower, and you know the, the, shepherd, the uh, sheep would be kept out in the fields, but when a, 
lamb, or when a sheep was going to give birth to a baby, they would go inside this tower uh, where they would be safe from wild animals, and they would. This is where this uh, you would give birth to the lamb, and if there were wild animals about, um, sometimes the shepherds would go in, in there themselves. So it was in this sheltered building that the priest would bring in the ewes for protection. It was priests that would do this because these were special lambs and they came from a unique flock. In other words, these weren't just ordinary shepherds watching just regular sheep. The belief is is that these sheep that were feeding in this pasture were close to this tower and they were there for a specific reason. It was a special flock that had been set aside. It was a flock that was designated for sacrifice in the temple. And if you do any Old Testament reading, you'll discover that there was a lot of sacrificing going on in the temple. It wasn't just done once a year. It was done all the time. There were sacrifices that were done every day, every morning, every night. Then there were all other types of sacrifices that would take place. Uh, when a woman would give birth, after she gave birth to a male, after, I think, uh, 40 days, they would have to sacrifice an animal because her time of impurity would be over. She gave birth to a female, she'd have to wait 80 days. I have no idea why the difference of the days. But she gave birth to a female, 80 days she would come and bring a sacrifice. So there were sacrifices going on all the time. And they were sacrificing goats, and they were sacrificing pigeons, and they were sacrificing bulls. But the big thing, the important thing, was these lambs. And there were a lot of sacrificing lambs. So they were, they were watching these flocks, and they were basically having these animals reproduce just so they could be sacrificed. That was their purpose. That was the reason why they were there, close to Jerusalem, why they were being watched and protected, as they were being, uh, in a sense, bred and groomed and protected uh, so they could be sacrificed in the temple. Uh, if you want to look this up in Alfred Edersheim in his book, uh, you, can, you can buy his book in one volume, but it also came in several volumes. It's book two and chapter six. And this is what he says about the McDowell uh, Ader. He says, uh, it was not the watchtower for ordinary flocks that pastured, in the, pastured on the barren sheep ground beyond Bethlehem, but it laid close to the town on the road to Jerusalem. And a passage from the Mishnah leads to the conclusion that these flocks which pastured uh, there were destined for temple sacrifices. And so according to his research, that's what all that is based on. We do know that this uh, watchtower was the watchtower that guarded the temple flocks that were being raised to serve as sacrificial animals in the temple. So they weren't just any flock or herd. The shepherds who kept them were men who were specially trained for this royal task. So they were regular shepherds, but they also had to take on some other responsibilities. And that responsibility was, is they had to examine these sheep and examine these lambs when they were born to make sure that they were without blemish. If these if these lambs had, if there was anything wrong with them, uh, you know, if they were blind in one eye, if they came out and they were lame, then they would have to be basically done away with. I don't know if they would kill them, if they would give them away, or what, what they did with them, but they couldn't remain part of the flock because this flock was, again, destined for sacrifice, and these animals had to be without blemish. And so it was their, their, it was their job to make sure then that these animals weren't hurt, that they weren't damaged, that they weren't blemished. Uh, and... What's also interesting is these lambs apparently were wrapped in swaddling clothes to protect them from injury and were also used to wrap Jesus. 
Now, before I was familiar with this idea when it came to swaddling clothes, which is strips of cloth. That's why if you have a, you know, some of the newer translations, they'll say that he was wrapped in a blanket. That is just incorrect. You need to go ahead and take a pen in your Bible and mark that out because that's not even close to being correct. It was literally strips of cloth. Now, in the other, in the stables that surrounded Bethlehem, which you had, a, again, a combination of caves, both tombs and stables, when they would uh, bury the body of a Jewish person, they would wrap them in these strips of cloth, and they would normally store them in the stable because you, oftentimes it wouldn't be unusual to have a stable right next door to a tomb. And so you would bring the body there, you would have the, your, your materials, which is these strips of cloth, wrap them, and so these swaddling clothes are grave clothes. That's what, they're, that's what they are. And it is obviously symbolic that Jesus was wrapped in that. But not only that, but when you add to this idea that these lambs that were born for sacrifice were wrapped in these swaddling clothes uh, when, they were, when, they, you know, when they were first born to protect them. And obviously this is just dripping with symbolism when you think about this idea that Jesus then was born for that purpose. That's why to the world it seems odd that we do this. But tomorrow evening when we have our Christmas Eve service, what we always do, it is a special communion service. And when we have communion, we are celebrating, we are remembering and celebrating the death of Jesus. Why do you do that at Christmas when you're celebrating the birth of Jesus? Because we know the reason why he was born, his purpose for coming was to what? Was to sacrifice himself to die for us. That was why he came. That was his purpose in coming. That was God's purpose in sending him. And so it's not an odd thing for us. We celebrate the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus at Christmas because we understand the theology behind what took place. And that this is not just some nice time for us to be with family, though that's great. It's not just for us to, to you know, exchange gifts, even though that's fun. But the idea is to truly celebrate the gift that God gave us. And the gift that God gave us was not just a baby Jesus. He was sending us Christ to die for us. That is the gift. It, it, it's, 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 the, it's going to bring the gift, the yield, the gift of salvation to us, to those who believe. And so that's why, you know, we want to make sure that we sometimes will make statements to people that, that uh, we want to make sure that, that we're not keeping Jesus in the manger. The world is not offended by a baby Jesus, but the world is offended by an adult Jesus who died for our sin. They don't like that part. We just have to make sure that we don't forget that part and allow that to go. And so again, these, as I said, these lambs, apparently it's believed that they were wrapped in these swaddling clothes to protect them. So with the establishment of the temple worship in Jerusalem, the fields outside of Bethlehem, which was a short uh, ways away from Jerusalem, uh, became the place where a special group of shepherds raised the lambs that were sacrificed in the temple. Those shepherds also, remember I said they were specially trained, they were under special rabbinical care. They would strictly maintain a ceremonial clean stable for a birthing place. Normally when you have an animal born in a barn... You don't scrub it down first. But this place, because of the, of the Jewish and the Mosaic law detail on cleanliness, not just for health reasons, but to make sure a place was ceremonial, ceremonial or clean, and to make sure that these lambs had every chance to be born without blemish and to be born without being hurt, this would have been a very clean place. And these rabbis would have made sure that these shepherds understood 
how they had to keep this place clean. So there's a possibility then that the manger scene may need to change and it needs to look like a rock tower that's very clean on the inside and no smelly animals. Now I'm sure lambs still smell a little bit, but it's not this stinking barn that we sometimes think that he was born in. Again, we don't know for sure, but the more that I read this and think about it, I'll be honest, I like this. I'm not going to say dogmatically that it's true, but I do like this and what he says. It just makes a lot of sense uh, when you think about what was going on during that time and how things were being done. So again, the tower of the flock was used for birthing ewes, and the surrounding fields were, were, uh, where these shepherds grazed their flocks. Um, these shepherds customarily kept their flocks outdoors 24 hours a day, every day of the year, and they brought the ewes in to deliver the lambs where they could be carefully cared for. And so Alfred Edersheim believes this is the place that Joseph took Mary. So what would have happened then? Shepherds who were in the field, and again, this doesn't mean they were right next to, this, to the tower. They could have been a mile away grazing the sheep. But when they were told, this would be a sign to you, the baby would be wrapped in swaddling clothes, the belief is the very first thing they would have thought of is the tower. That's what they would have thought of first because uh, uh, of the symbolism and, and what they were familiar with. And so, uh, again, these were the shepherds that first received the news. Luke chapter 2, that I read, beginning in verse 8, records that these shepherds were in the fields keeping watch over their sheep by night. These shepherds, who were ones who resided near Bethlehem, uh, they were the shepherds from Migdal Ader, who were well aware of what the Targum, which is the explanation of the Tanakh, hinted at, and many of the rabbis taught that the Messiah might well be announced from that place. Now, they didn't believe that the Messiah would be born there, but they believed there would be an announcement that would be made. Now remember that when it came to uh, the Jews who were awaiting the coming of the Messiah, remember that there were several different beliefs. You know, there were those who believed that when the Messiah came, that the Messiah would be a Pharisee. Um, uh, there were some who believed there would be two Messiahs. You know, that, that there would be one who would suffer and then one who would rule. Uh, the idea of a, a suffering Messiah coming in the beginning, uh, not a whole lot of them were really ha- had their, their minds wrapped around that. But there were several different views about, about that. But what they did believe was that an announcement would be made and that the announcement might be made from this tower. And so that would have been in their thinking. They would have been taught that. Because remember, when, when uh, young boys and girls were sent to school, for the first several years of their schooling, their schooling was only religious. Uh, when you, uh, Jewish families would send their kids to school, and the rabbis would teach, and the only thing they would study would be the Old Testament. And there was a reason for that. It wasn't because they were just trying to propagate their religion. The belief was was that you needed to prepare a person to live life. And the way you prepare someone to live life is to make sure they have an understanding of who God is and and have a good understanding of ethics and morals, how we are to think, how we are to think properly. And so they believed that before you would learn math and whatever skill that you were supposed to learn, you you need to have a proper foundation, which was how do you think morally? How do you think religiously? How do you think about God? And that's what they were taught at a young age. And then that way, no matter what skill they, they learned, no matter what they ended up doing in life, they were prepared to live life, what? Righteously. That was the idea. And so they would have heard these things uh, from these rabbis and from the Pharisees. Again, as I said, the angels only told the shepherds that they would find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. 
They didn't give them directions. They didn't say, look for a star. It's pointing to that, the exact spot. They didn't say any of that. Uh, but the men, again, who raised sacrificial lambs that were sacrificed in the temple knew exactly what they were talking about. Alfred Edersheim believes that you cannot explain the meaning or the direction of the sign they were given or their response unless you have the right uh, manger and the right shepherds. And these guys knew exactly what was going on. So then, Migdal Ader, the tower of the flock at Bethlehem, really was the perfect place for Christ to be born. He was born in the very birthplace where tens of thousands of lambs, uh, which had been sacrificed to prefigure him. It all fits together, for that's the place, the place where sacrificial lambs were born. Jesus then was not born in an inn. Most likely, it seems, he wasn't born in a smelly stable where the donkeys of travelers and other animals were kept. It could be very well that Jesus was born in Bethlehem at the birthing place of the sacrificial lambs that were offered in the temple in Jerusalem, which Micah chapter 4 verse 8 calls the tower of the flock. And so there's a chance that that all this here is true, whether it's this or whether it was a cave um, where, where the stables were kept. One of the things I think is great about this is, once again, this gives to us an opportunity whether we're talking to our children, our grandchildren, or maybe to a co-worker, you can strike up a conversation about, of all things, Christmas. And you could say, you know, I heard something interesting in church the other day, which that alone might cause them to wonder what's going on, because people don't imagine you're anything interesting in church. And you could say, I heard that there's a possibility that he might not have been born in a manger or in a stable like we think of a stable. It could have been in this old tower. And hopefully they say, what are you talking about? And then you get to share with them about this special, these special shepherds and these sheep that were being uh, bred, basically, for sacrifice, and how Jesus was born in this place, and what all that means, which is what? We want to make sure that when we speak of Christ, we're not just pointing to a little baby in a stable. We want to make sure that we're pointing to, to, to the Jesus of the cross and why he came. He came because of our miserable situation. Remember that our problems stem from the fact that we are separated from God and we are without a clue. When you, when you hear of the problems in the world, it doesn't matter if it's the opioid crisis and all these individuals that are overdosing on drugs. Remember why they take them. People take those things because of the pain in their life. And normally it's not because of the physical pain. You know what's interesting is that there's a very tiny percentage of individuals who are prescribed opioids who get hooked on them. They take them because they work on whatever pain they've had, maybe it's from surgery, and then when, when, when that's healed up, they're done. And they don't take them anymore. Normally the reasons, uh, maybe always, but normally the reason why people continue to take them is because of the emotional pain, the pain of living in their life. And what they don't recognize is the cause of all of that is their own sin. And so Jesus Christ really is the answer. He really is. And when we share the gospel, remember this. It can sound, on, in one hand, almost kind of silly. That people have all these individual problems and that we're going to advocate that the answer to the problem is this man who was born in a stable who lived in an obscure place in an obscure time, who was crucified like thousands and thousands of other people, 
And there's a story that he was raising him from the dead. Their life can be transformed and fixed by that. Their pain can be healed. They can, they can deal with the, with the difficulties of life if they come to know Christ. Remember, it doesn't have to be something that sounds extravagant to us because the Bible says what? The gospel is the power of God. The story itself is the power of God to salvation. And so present them the gospel. And don't worry about how they're going to respond. Explain it to them as best and as thoroughly as you can. And ask the Lord to bless it. And ask the Lord to convict them of their sins. You don't have to convict them that they're a sinner. You can just tell them that they are. And you can even do that nicely. You can begin by saying that you are a sinner as well. That you, your life is just messed up and that you came to understand one day that you realized you could never earn your way back to God. And that there was no chance on earth you were going to make it to heaven. And that really concerned you. And then when you understood the gospel, it began to make sense of why it made sense to you. So you don't need any special training. You already know the story. And you can share with them how you came to believe in Christ succinctly. And then just tack on some questions about them. And ask them to think about it. You don't have to ask them to drop to their knees right there and believe in Christ. You can. But you can tell them that you're going to talk to them again later. Or that you're going to pray for them. Or whatever the case may happen to be. We want to get them to think about Christmas, to think about Jesus. And perhaps what we've learned here today is that Jesus wasn't born in a stinking stable surrounded by a bunch of dirty animals, but it was in a place that was really rather pretty clean. Animals were there. It was a place where ewes were brought to give birth to lambs, and the sole purpose of that place was to breed lambs to be sacrificed in the temple. And that was why Jesus Christ was born, to be sacrificed in Jerusalem for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your grace and for your love and for your word. Father, we thank you so much again that you sent Christ as a sacrifice for us. It's an amazing thing, Father, when we think about it. It's humbling. But, Father, we know that as we live life, we know that none of us have ever even come close to being good enough to earn any favor from you, much less to earn enough credit to be able to make it to heaven. And then, Father, when we realize that the requirement for heaven is not just having more good works than bad, but it's perfection. We know, Lord, that we are barred from heaven for all of eternity. And yet, Lord, you remedied that by sending your own son, Christ, to bear the guilt that we could not bear under, and to bear our sin that we could not pay for. And so, Father, we are so grateful for that. And we pray that this Christmas we will, it will truly be a time where we will be able to celebrate together with much thanksgiving what you've given to us. We do pray, Lord, that if there are any here this morning who are unsure, perhaps they, maybe they even know that they have not believed in the gospel. Perhaps they themselves are suffering from the kind of pain that many people experience in this world, being rejected by others, being unsure about themselves, unsure about life, feeling uh, emotional pain because of, of maybe not having someone to love or anyone to love them, a feeling in the sense of being alone in the world, a long father maybe with just bearing the guilt of their own sin and the things they've done wrong. We pray, Lord, they would realize that they can come to Christ 
and that you will lift the burden. One just needs to confess their sins to God, ask you to forgive them, and believe in Christ. And as the scripture says, they'll be saved. So, Father, again, we thank you for your grace and your patience. Thank you again, Father. We do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.